Right, so I want to start off. Uh, we're going to talk, I'm just going to take you on a little guided tour through the darknet. Do you guys know what the darknet is? Some of you might have heard of it, right? It's had some pretty bad press lately, actually, uh, in, especially in Germany, and we'll come to why that is. Uh, but first off, this is what I want to show you. Has anyone ever used this before? The Tor browser, a handful of you. Germans, I think, I, I think I've looked at some statistics. German, German uh, citizens are actually more likely than most to worry about internet privacy and to take measures to protect it. Now this is the Tor browser. I've never done a PowerPoint with the slides right above my head. This is the Tor browser. Behold the Tor browser. And this was originally invented by the US Navy, US Naval Research Team. They, in the 1990s, wanted to come up with a way of being able to browse the internet without giving away their IP address, their location. It's very obvious. If you are a research analyst for US Navy intelligence, that you don't want people to know where you are when you're researching them on the internet. So they wanted to build this system, and they did, and it was amazing. And they did it by creating um, something called the Tor, the Tor browser. It's called, it stands for the Onion Router. And you know when you visit a website, you send your IP address to the server that hosts that website and then they send the information back to your IP address, your computer or your phone or whatever. This leaves a trace. So they created a system by which you could encrypt your original IP address in several layers of encryption and then send it around the world to different computers that had downloaded this software decrypting that encryption as it went. And so by the time it got to a website, the person that ran the website does not know where you are. It doesn't know what your original IP address is. If that makes sense to you, you've got it. It's a very clever way of being able to browse the internet without giving away your location. But this is amazing, amazing. This is non-standard protocol language though. And the problem at the time that the US Navy intelligence people worked out was that they are the only ones in the world that are using this stuff. Which means that everybody would know it was them. Which defeated the object of building this system. So they decided to open source it, make it available to everybody. A charity called the Tor Foundation took this up and they started to maintain this browser so that people could go online anywhere in the world and protect their privacy. So it allowed people, especially in difficult parts of the world, to have some degree of internet privacy and also to get around censorship. Because you know when you're routing that traffic using this Tor browser around these computers around the world, you can get around, sometimes when a country has these big censorship blocks, you can get around that using this browser. So this is amazing, right? And it got picked up by journalists, human rights activists who loved this software. And most people use it to go on the normal internet. There's something like three or four million daily users of this. You can download it now. There's nothing illegal about it. And you can use it to go on the normal internet. The difference is it's a little bit slower and it protects your IP address. But also your way onto the darknet. 
And the Darknet is a network of about 30,000 sites that uses the same protocol as this browser, which means that you can only access the sites using this browser and you cannot find the servers on which the websites are located, which means it's very difficult to censor or control. That is the Darknet. And naturally enough, this Darknet, and by the way, the URLs are just a string of numbers and letters, and they finish in dot .onion, and you can't remember what they are. The Darknet became very quickly, from about 2010, 2011 onwards, a very natural place for people who had something to hide or wanted to stay private. It became a very natural place for them to go. And so you started to see all sorts of different things turning up on this Darknet, including perfectly legitimate and legal stuff. So this is the New Yorker has a Dropbox for journalists who want to share information securely. I'm coming back to the New Yorker again. I seem to have an obsession with the New Yorker. The, the entire WikiLeaks cache, all of the WikiLeaks files, whatever you think about WikiLeaks, all of the WikiLeaks cache is available on the Darknet. You will also find, if you don't want to buy my book, um, you can just download a free copy on uh, one of the many piracy sites that are available there. We are going to come on to the illegal marketplaces in a second. But increasingly, commercially available hacking services. So imagine a decade ago, if you wanted to be a computer hacker, you needed to know something about computers. You needed to know about networks, or you needed to know about programming languages. Not anymore. You can just pay somebody to hack something for you. So there's this democratization of computer hacking. You just pay somebody, or you download a bit of software. Anybody here could be a computer hacker now, very easily indeed. And very recently, I just took a look the other day. Did you see that uh, Stormfront, a neo-Nazi, no, Daily Stormer, a neo-Nazi site from the US, was removed from the internet? All of, all of the internet providers said, we're getting rid of this neo-Nazi stuff after some of those uh, 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 demonstrations that they were having. But it just reappeared on the darknet very, very quickly. Um, punished Stormer, a website denied its domain name. So they're sort of playing, obviously, on the idea that the people want to shut them down and silence them. So the darknet has become this really interesting and quite scary place where you have very, very good people doing very good stuff right next to very bad people doing very bad stuff. Now, most people know about the darknet because of this. Anyone ever used the Silk Road illegal drugs market before in the room? Yeah, I know for a fact some people have, um, because more and more people are. In fact, in the most recent global drug survey, we found that in the UK anyway, one in four people now get their drugs from these darknet markets. Unbelievable, and a very, very quick change. And I'm going to explain to you how they work. So, I'm not going to give you a step-by-step -step guide, but you download your Tor browser. <laughs> um, when, when I first heard about these darknet markets, that's the Silk Road, the most infamous of these marketplaces that was running for about 18 months. 
until it was shut down by the FBI in 2013. Um, I imagined, right, that there were, there were going to be these like weird little forums where people would meet up and agree a deal and then maybe go offline to collect their products. Well, it's quite clear that that is not how they work at all. I mean, anybody that has ever bought anything off Amazon or eBay, which is probably most of you, immediately know how this thing works, which is to say that you sign on, you, 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 know, you, you search through hundreds of different products from hundreds of different vendors, you check the product description, you look at the price, it's up there in Bitcoin, and I don't know if you can see this. This is my favourite button of all. Let's see if this little laser thing works. See that button there? That says report this item. <laughs> Not to the police, obviously, but to the site administrator. So if you think that you've bought this and it doesn't look like this or the description isn't very good, you can report it to the site administrator who will investigate the vendor for you. Now, all the, all the trappings are the same. The prices, you've got a little basket up there as well. I mean, everything is as you expect. So what people do is they download their browser, they search the site, they make a decision, they pay in the cryptocurrency Bitcoin, um, and they put an address in, and a Bitcoin is like a pseudonymous cash that allows you to transfer Bitcoin to each other very, very easily with a high degree of privacy. And you then put an address in, and you wait for the products to turn up at your house. I mean, most people don't put their home address, because that would be stupid. They put a, a, a drop address, which is an address to which they have access, uh, but they don't use their real names usually. Yeah, and unbelievably, because this looks so familiar, there have been cases of people phoning the police to complain that their products haven't arrived in the post. Because it feels so ordinary, so natural. Now, what has happened with these darknet markets and why they have become so popular is exactly as you would expect. Now, after everybody buys anything from this site, they go back on there and they write a user review. So they give the product a score out of five and they write a detailed bit of review. Oh, the product was very well hidden in the package. The vendor was very polite. Uh, it was very strong or it was whatever. And that has introduced into these marketplaces the kind of co competition and choice dynamic that an economist would recognize. And what an economist would predict is that, of course, the price starts going down and the quality starts going up because vendors are competing with each other for your money. And that is exactly what has happened on these markets. So the average, I'm not trying to sell these to you, but just so you know, the average purity of cocaine sold on the streets in the UK is between, it's about 30%, but it's sometimes as low as 2%. The average purity of cocaine sold on these sites is 70%, and it's sometimes as high as 90% for the same price. And if you want to understand why these things are growing, forget the clever encryption and the Bitcoin. It's a market. It's a functioning market. And that's the secret behind them. So as a result, you will never find more polite and generous drug dealers in your life. 
I mean, literally, you're emailing them. Like, I emailed one and said, oh, I'm not sure, because I decided for my book I'd buy one gram of marijuana, right? So I email one and say, yeah, hello, uh, I'd like to buy one gram of marijuana. Could you uh, advise me, please? And I get a reply like six hours later, dear sir, thank you very much for your inquiry. <laughs> we would, of course, be delighted to display. Have you considered trying X, Y, and Z? Best wishes, drugs heaven. And this is, this is how it goes, and it becomes very natural. And as a result of this competition and choice, these places become incredibly innovative. I mean, incredibly innovative. There are, uh, there's a Google for these markets, so you can Google trending drugs and popular drugs. They've started trying to sell advertising against them, which I don't think is going to work. You have a mystery shopper who goes around trying them and writes really good reviews. And you, uh, you even have fair trade and organic cocaine being sold on these. Can you believe that? So there's this one vendor who was selling, he said, this cocaine is uh, it's not from Colombian drug kingpins, okay? This is sourced from local Guatemalan farmers, decent people. And we will reinvest 20% of all the profits we make into local education programs in Guatemala. You believe that? So this is the logic of these markets, and people haven't really understood that. They still think about it as being some kind of magic of encryption, but it's not. I mean, they have all of that stuff too, but the real genius is the introduction of competition and choice. And so as a result of that, this site, the Silk Road, which, yes, was shut down after 18 months, managed to sell in excess of, or managed to trade in excess of a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin over the 18 months that it was running. And incredible. Now, every single time the authorities try to shut one of these sites down, and they have several successes, they reappear. And they reappear having figured out what they did wrong last time. So back in 2012-13, the Silk Road was really one of only two or three sites. There's now around 30 sites in operation, all doing the same stuff as this. And it's not only drugs that are being sold here. While I was researching this book, the number one selling item was not cocaine or marijuana, it was fake Tesco 20 pound vouchers that were being sold for eight pounds each. So it, there's all sorts of different things being bought and sold. Now to give you one example of how they learn and they always learn, and they always get smarter. One of the problems was that, of course, if you send money as in the form of Bitcoin to a dealer, they might run off with your money, and you don't really have much recourse. You can write a bad review, but that might not be enough. So the marketplace got together and worked out a solution to this, which was called multi-signature escrow which means that three people are involved in a transaction, the buyer, the seller, and the vendor. When you make your order, you put your money into an escrow account. The vendor sees that it's in there but can't access it yet, so he or she is confident to send your product. And then once the product is received, I will also sign it off with my key, and as long as one of the other two people sign it off with their key, the money is then released to the vendor. Really simple but it really works for these places. And there's dozens of examples like it. Now this all has created a big moral problem, I think. Because on the one hand, this makes 
drugs more predictable in purity. You don't have to stand around on street corners dangerously trying to get hold of your stuff. Uh, we have several deaths where people are overdosing because they don't know how strong their products are, but on these marketplaces you have a way of trying to gauge that. But it does make more drugs more available more easily to more people. And that means more people are going to start taking them, including very strong drugs, psychedelics, heroin, and whatever else, because all of these things are also available there. It's okay to talk about marijuana, but of course there's many other types of drugs, and they're more readily available now too. What's more, it's creating new types of drug dealers, people who simply understand this technology, who can then buy loads of drugs in through these markets and sell them on the street. So we are creating all sorts of new challenges now in the drugs industry, and it's not going to go away. Now, it's not only drugs that... Here's a couple of other examples that came up after the Silk Road was taken down. Now, the problem is, of course, it's not only drugs that are being sold there. And actually, in Germany, you had one of... I think it was... Was it six months or a year ago where a guy bought a gun or parts for a gun from one of these marketplaces? So... It, the problem with these markets is it's one thing talking about drugs, and you could make a moral case for that, but there are many more things being sold on them, including guns, ammunition, counterfeit money, counterfeit passports, and I don't think there's actually any way of stopping them. I don't think we can shut them down. Now, one of the things that increasingly, in the last six months especially, I have seen, and that was not really there when I started writing the book, is stolen data. Stolen data has become one of the biggest trades on the dark net. And there are thousands and thousands of vendors selling stolen data, your stolen data, visa card numbers, um, social security numbers, health records, voting data. I mean, anytime you hear about a major hack of any big company, it appears up here very quickly as a product for sale on the darknet. And this is becoming a massive problem. Credit cards, of course, you can expect. They are always there. They're always going to be sold. But there's interesting new cases. So a little while ago, um, this is, uh, a Vodafone, uh, it wasn't Vodafone, it was a talk talk. TalkTalk, Talk, one of our communications companies, had 200,000 records stolen, people's phone numbers, bank details, email addresses, and within a very short space of time indeed, they appeared up here being sold $2.75 per record that people would then try to use for various forms of identity theft. And there's more. So about a year ago, I noticed this. O2, one of the very, very large telecommunications companies, had someone was selling O2 data. My O2 is uh, basically your kind of your account for your O2 for your O2 phone, and they were selling the password and username combinations with phone numbers and email addresses and dates of birth. For there you go, you see, buy five get two free just typical of the darknet special offer. 
And we phoned up O2, because I bought some. I bought a load of these and then phoned people up and said, is your date of birth, da -da -da -da, yes it is. Is your password, da -da -da, yes it is. And I said, well, your data is being sold on the darknet. You need to change your password. So we got in touch with O2 and said, we think you've had some kind of massive data breach because they're selling data from O2 that's legit on the darknet for $4.50 each. And they did this big test and they said that we have had no data stolen. And I was thinking, yeah, because O2 has amazing security, so it probably would be hard to steal this stuff. And we later found out what had happened. About six months before this, a gaming site had been hacked and 500,000 username and passwords were stolen from that gaming site. Now, everybody uses the same username and password, right? Be honest. How many username password combinations do you have? Two or three? Because we can't remember all of these different ones constantly. It's impossible. So most people reuse them. So they stole 500,000 and then they tried every combination on Amazon, on eBay, on O2, on Vodafone, on Facebook, anywhere they could. And they found thousands and thousands of matches. They found thousands of matches on O2, they packaged them up separately and then resold them as stolen O2 data. I hope you're gonna check your passwords later because this is called credential stuffing and it is very, very common. And the danger is that you think my data is safe with O2, my data is safe with Amazon, it's fine. But the problem is not that. If you've reused passwords, your data is now with some crap website that you signed up to 10 minutes ago because you couldn't be bothered and you needed to put your details in. And if that one gets hacked into, then your Amazon's getting hacked into as well. And this market is booming. So you need to make sure that you are aware of that. Now, the authorities have started to try to crack down on this. And fairly recently, there was a bit of a breakthrough. A couple of big darknet markets were shut down by the authorities. Uh, the Dutch police, I think the German police were probably involved in it too, and Europol, and they scared the living daylights out of everybody that was on these sites. So, there are ways of trying to police this. You can't have a technical solution, because I don't think you can shut them down. But you can sometimes infiltrate them, and this is what the authorities are trying now to do. They're pretending to be vendors. They're setting up their own sites. You know, if I was a police person, what I would do is I'd mess around with that user review system because that is the way that the whole thing really works. But we are getting some breakthroughs from law authority who are using good old fashioned policing techniques, infiltrating these sites, pretending to be dealers, and they're getting some breakthroughs. So this is brilliant. A couple of months ago, excellent. They shut down two big sites. But I went back on there and there's loads more again. You can't shut these things down. And this one is particularly terrifying. This is a kind of niche market, and we're seeing more of these where you can buy government secrets. Terrifying stuff. So the market's evolving, the market's improving, the market is growing. And this was from just a few days ago, went back on there, had another look. And I'm sick of the darknet, right? I don't like going on there anymore. But every now and again, I go back and take a little look. And again, driver's licenses, all the same stuff as usual. Here we go. And a lot of it, you know I said earlier on about how 
What this is doing is democratizing the ability to be a computer hacker. One of the things that they sell now, much more of than in the past, is basically like user guides. So if you steal some stolen credit cards from a darknet vendor, or buy some stolen credit cards from a darknet vendor, you need to know which websites you could go to to use it without getting caught, right? So they sell special guides to show you the best hundred sites where you can card, i.e. where you can use your fake credit card. And this. This is the final thing that I want to try to scare you with. And I'm a bit annoyed about all of this, right? Now, has anyone had this come up on their screen before? Or a variant of this? A, a ransomware. Someone shouted yes. Ransomware. Oh my god, it's so annoying. So ransomware is, you're probably now all more aware than you were one year ago. Ransomware locks, it's malware that locks the computer hard drive that you have and forces you to pay a ransom in Bitcoin to get it unlocked. Otherwise, it will be wiped forever. Now, our NHS in the UK got attacked by this accidentally. They didn't target the NHS. And it meant millions and millions of pounds were lost because of delays in trying to reboot systems. I've been warning people about this bloody ransomware for ages and no one was listening to me because it's being sold on the darknet. And it's very, very easy indeed to get this. It's very, very easy to buy these ransomware packages where all you need to do is buy the little bit of malware with 500,000 stolen email addresses, set up a Bitcoin wallet somewhere and just send it out and see what comes back. And this is a very, this is another one of those flourishing markets on the darknet in ransomware. And this problem is not going to go away. People reckon that by 2020, there is going to be something like 20 billion internet-enabled devices. So obviously we have our smartphones and our laptops, but increasingly our cars and our fridges and our toasters and everything else are becoming internet-enabled. The security on those internet-enabled devices is notoriously bad. It's going to be one of the great challenges. And what is going to happen is you're going to start finding on the darknet botnets, which are essentially collections of internet-enabled devices being sold for your use. So if you, for example, wanted to shut down a website, the way you do it is called a distributed denial-of-service attack. You basically send millions of requests to visit a website from computers that you have borrowed or hacked into, and it prevents, it gets overwhelmed with the traffic, and it prevents a normal person from visiting it. So when a computer site is knocked offline, this is what happens. You can use internet-enabled devices to do that as well. And a few weeks ago, some of the biggest companies in the world were knocked offline by a botnet of hundreds of thousands of CCTV cameras that had been made internet-enabled. And this is going to start being sold on darknet markets. So, in other words, I'm trying to be really miserable and depressing and upset you all and worry you all. Um, but it's not all bad news because these, this technology, the darknet technology, is also amazing. I mean, it's helping people stay safe. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, I think, have huge possible benefits for individuals and for businesses and for governments even. 
There's all amazing ways that this technology can be employed, but increasingly these places are getting harder and harder to close down. I don't think we are going to be able to shut them down entirely. The dark net and all the challenges associated with it are going to be with us. And what matters now is not to try and close these things down or pretend they don't exist, but rather just get prepared for them, to be ready, to realise that these things are here to stay and we're going to need to try and live with it. And with that, I'd love to hear some questions. Thank you very much. Now, we have, we have 15 minutes for questions. I would love the audience to get involved. So I'll do the first two, and then you come up with your questions. I'll come to you and give you the microphone. Um, I was wondering, um, those people that have discovered all these new ways of making money on these dark nets, are they from specific regions, or are they everywhere? I mean, at the time, there were a lot of Russians on there, I know, but, but could you find out who is behind all these services? Uh, well, the, the one thing that you can't know is where the Darknet sites are based. It's impossible. You can try and guess from the language use, and you have Russian language markets, you have Italian language markets, and so on. But um, you can see who is downloading Tor browsers. Okay. Uh, the Tor uh, Foundation gives you that information for free. They publish on their website. And it's quite mixed, so you do have it in places you'd expect. You do have it in Egypt, or in Libya, or in Iran. But also you have a lot in developed countries who are using it for a lot, mostly, for, market, for these drugs markets. Yeah. Because, because you described it, in a way it's democratizing hacking, and it's, in a way it's democratizing crime as well. I mean, it becomes really easy to become a, a drug lord if you do this, right? Honestly, I mean, I mean without wanting to propose you do anything anyone in this room could could become a drug kingpin really easily and that was just not possible and when I was when I was 10 years old right 11 years old I used to go into the uh, one of our shops called Woolworths that had these free little pick and mix sweets so you used to get little sweets and you had to pay for them at the end but we didn't pay for them we just stole them and ate them and that was the kind of extent of my criminal <laughs> well Woolworths shut down soon after that so I always felt quite bad but now it's possible when you're young, you're 13, 14, making some pretty stupid decisions, you can actually just go and buy stolen credit cards. And I've heard stories of teenagers who think this is really funny. Oh, I just go and buy some credit cards. It's brilliant. Yeah, I'm just going there. It's not even, it's not even stealing. It's just, you know, I'll get some credit cards. Just and playing I'll buy... around the computer. Exactly. And there, there's a real risk that people commit incredibly serious crimes without understanding really what they're doing. And that's especially true when teachers, in my experience, have absolutely no idea about any of this, and most parents don't either, because they don't really want to kind of look too deeply into it. And that is, that is such a big problem. Parents and teachers have a responsibility to understand all of this. To, to teach their kids this is actually crime. It's not to play. Questions from the audience. I'm going to walk over here, because otherwise I don't see. Who's got a question? It is very dark up here, so you can't yes, really see anybody. Yes, it's dark, it's dark. There's one over there, this, or is this man just scratching his head? Oh, he's just scratching <laughs> his head. All right. Come on, don't be shy. There must be one question here or other about the dark net. Yes, thank you, sir. All right. Yes, hello. Um, so you've shown the example of someone buying O2 accounts. And um, for me, it's just kind of hard to imagine, like, what would someone do 
with my O2 account. Like I can see credit cards, I can see PayPal accounts and whatever, but I mean, I, I hardly know myself what to do with my O2 account. And yeah, like, good question. So sometimes they would, um, the most common thing that would someone would probably do with an O2 account would be to try to open a credit card account up in that name. So take the date of birth and all the other identifying information and then try to commit identity fraud. So rather than, there's not much value in an O2 account in and of itself, but armed with the information about you, they could, uh, they could open something else up. If you're in an Amazon account, for example, what they would probably do is to lock the account by changing the password and then buy as much stuff as they possibly could before anyone figured this out, get it sent to a different address to which they have access, but that's not their home address, and then sell that in an offline marketplace. But they're the sorts of things that people tend to do. More questions? Yeah. I noticed that there's one whole category of crime that you didn't mention, and that at least in the analysis being talked a lot about the child pornography and the yes. trade in child pornography. Yes. The reason I, that you didn't. Well, yeah. It. So I didn't really want to. I mean, obviously, I can't. I can't. Didn't want to ruin the mood even. Well, and I couldn't. I can't show any of that sort of stuff, obviously. But the the yeah the other bit of what is on the darknet is is unfortunately huge volumes of illegal pornography, um, and it's completely changed the way. I mean, the internet generally has completely changed the scale of the problem, because in the 1980s, the FBI had a pretty good handle on what illegal pornography was in circulation. There were a few thousand images that they tended to know about. Nowadays, you can easily find an individual offender with millions of images on their computer. And it's completely changed because every image can be replicated an infinite number of times and shared an infinite number of times, which is obviously not true of physical um, illegal material. And so what's happened with these darknet um, illegal pornography sites is that people have uploaded vast volumes of illegal pornography onto a darknet site, then other people have downloaded it onto their own hard drives and encrypted it, which means every time a site is knocked offline, somebody around the world has it all downloaded on a hard drive and they just re-upload it straight away. And there is no way of solving that problem. And I know it's a hard thing to hear, but we will, and every government says, we are going to remove illegal material from the internet. It's not possible. It's not going to happen. And the other problem on the issue of illegal pornography is one that we can do something about. Because roughly one third of illegal content is generated by children themselves. Taking pictures of themselves, videoing themselves, and then sending it around. Just the innocence. No. Not realizing that it's then being collected by yeah. pornographers and paedophiles who then create a collection of it. And we desperately need some way of teaching people about the risk. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this whole book was to try to warn people about some of the risks of this kind of thing. We can do something about that. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, you know what? I feel really sorry for kids that are 15 or 16. Because it was hard enough when I was 15 or 16. You can't be foolish. You can't you, I did so many life. stupid things. I yeah. am so grateful I didn't have a smartphone. I know. Because I, I it would be so much more difficult. And you'd yeah. make a stupid mistake that you would never be able to recover from. Yeah. And that's the difference. You get naked, drunk, vomit, whatever. I mean, you can be embarrassed for the rest of your life. Uh, about the pornography market, is, is the same sort of 
market uh, function going on there with the quality control and the trustworthiness no, of the buyer? No, it's no, different. different. No, it's different. Okay. I'd say it's probably more like YouTube in the sense that people share the material. They will. Um, they have collections. They're trading, though, right? It's, it's a business. There's money being. So there's two different bits. So there's there's bits of it that's a business, and and it's horrible to talk about, but you people have collections and sort of rare material that they will sell. And but, but but in other places it's more like YouTube where people just upload content in some kind of like horrible yeah. charitable community driven <laughs> gesture. Yeah. And so it does it does it, it does work in sort of, there is a, both a business and a sort of charitable wing of it. And if, uh, it, it's obviously a horrible thing to talk about, but it is quite important that we understand how it works. Yeah. Because yeah. that's we need to if we're going to try and at least do something to limit the damage that it does. I'm, I'm trying to, yes, there's a question over here, please. Oh, yeah, there's a mic. Thank you. How, hi, how many such browsers are there? Is Tor the only one? And how would I recognize that it's um, one of my kids' phone? Uh, yeah, right, that's a good question. Yeah, <laughs> Very I mean, practical question. Yeah, to, so to me, so, so Tor is by far the most popular. There are other types of networks where you can, that are kind of intranets, that are hidden networks, but Tor's the only one where you can use both the normal internet and the darknet, which is why it's the most popular by far. I, to be honest, there aren't really any others like it. Honestly, the only way you're going to know is to check your kid's phone and his or her computer. To see, I mean, one thing I would look for is, is his browsing history, particularly if they have visited the Tor Foundation website and downloaded the browser. Now, if they are very, very clever, they could get around that, but I would put a block on that. There is no reason why a 16-year-old should be having the Tor browser, frankly. I mean, I really don't see why you'd want it at that age. So, you know, to me, I, I, I want parents to actually, like when I was young, and I keep going back to when I was young, yeah, go but <laughs> I am sure my mum was going through my drawers and like checking what I was doing and going through my room, fair enough as well. That's what she should have been doing. Well, why aren't we doing that on the internet? Because there's a million more things you could do on the internet. And yet I think parents sometimes just leave that and say, oh, that's for the kids. They're doing stuff on it. Not, not, I'm not saying you, of course, but a lot of parents that I come across with, they just leave that. So I think it's very important to be quite active in monitoring and checking what they're using. And if there's a Tor browser anywhere, have words with them about it. Okay, we can have one last question, I think. So. Maybe a more upbeat, you know, it's hard to make a positive question here. Uh, where did you get the source for the information that there's 90% uh, of pure cocaine, cocaine on the internet? Yeah. <laughs> because... Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, don't quote me on this, but there was um, someone, uh, there's a Spanish doctor who was spending his time on the Darknet Drugs forums giving advice to people who had questions about taking drugs safely. That's the other thing about these Darknet markets. They have forums where people can then talk about stuff. And a laboratory with which he was involved was taking, was receiving hundreds of, I mean, people were mailing or giving hundreds of samples from the Darknet to test how strong they were. And that was their results. I can't remember the exact name of the paper, but it is in the book. So but you could email me and I'll send you the reference. Thank you. Okay.
closing, is there anything else we can do apart from teaching our kids? And I mean, is there anything we can do? Well, I mean, yeah. In the end, okay. So, like, the way I see this is going, censorship is going to get harder and harder. Controlling the material that's available online will get more and more difficult. I actually think that within a decade, censorship on the internet will not really exist in, anymore. It will all be decentralised and it will be very hard to control. And that means more and more important is that people are able to make good moral judgments of their own, critical, critically assess information, make decisions about why they would use the Tor browser. 20 years ago, we could rely on on gatekeepers to make judgments for us. Now it's going to be down on individuals more than ever before. The best chance we've got in that sense is, I know it's cliche, but it is to teach people to be critical thinkers of, the, of their own, to understand the risks and responsibilities of internet life. And I'm sorry, I can't speak for the German national curriculum, but the UK national curriculum is very, very bad indeed when it comes to this. It teaches information technology. Right? And that's about how do you use Microsoft? How do you do a spreadsheet? And it has barely anything on media literacy, on responsibility, on publishing responsibility, on how to use the internet safely. But that should be at least 50% of what this course is about. So to me, that is the biggest challenge that we face. Ladies and gentlemen, let's all raise good people. Thank you very much, Jamie Butler. Thanks.